to Last on the Breaks this week, coming to you once again from lockdown, audio visual as well. We are, of course, the MotoGP podcast, currently trying to bring you some of the best deep dive interviews into various people in the paddock or previously in the paddock, riders, mechanics, team personnel, legends like our right honourable guest today. Who have we got on today, Matt? Well, as your uh, lovely viewers might have realised when you clicked on either the video that you're watching this or perhaps the podcast, it is in fact six times a world champion, four times 250 class consecutively, and a double world superbike champion, Max Biaggi. Uh, the guy doesn't really need much of an intro, to be honest, if, uh, you know, he's an absolute legend of the sport. He's actually, he was set to be made a MotoGP legend come uh, the Italian GP this year but of course that will have been put on hold for the time being but Max MotoGP legend got to, wanted to speak to him not just about his career because I think given his status in the sport that would have been done many a times we wanted some different perspectives didn't we Fran? We did indeed so we've got a little bit on retirement adrenaline when you get thrown in there and uh, you're not really sure what's happening the difference <laughs> between the sport then and now um, and a few good things as well about what it's like being a team owner, a young rider, working with them as well. I think it's, it's a good deep dive. And then at the end, of course, we have Kenwood Quickfire putting him on the spot to get some instinctive answers brought to you by our podcast sponsor and MotoGP communications uh, provider, JVC Kenwood, with all our on-site radios. Shout out to Kenwood for uh, keeping us going. I really appreciate your support in the podcast and I hope you guys as well are enjoying the quickfire questions. And something else which actually might find from, uh, interesting from Biaggi's perspective coming up later, a bit of a teaser. What does a four-time 250cc world champion think about how quickly riders these days move up to MotoGP? Well, Tune in later to find out. Uh, so uh, that must have been a bit weird moving back and forth We're to the camera. We're feeling a bit loose today, aren't we? We've done yeah, plenty of... Uh... Exactly. <laughs> with the wallpaper behind me as well, quite jazzy. So, yeah. Well, Lovely. enough of us uh, uh, flapping our gums. Well, better get on with the actual podcast. Let's give Max a ring, shall we, with this lovely sunflower Indeed. backdrop. <laughs> I looked at the footage from uh, 1994 Suzuka at the final corner. I <laughs> that was yeah. that was an ambitious move. I gotta say. Yeah. <laughs> so as you saw that, I, I didn't choose something. Then it put me in a highlight because I won that race. Actually, I, I finished fourth. Mm. But I was thinking that it's it's nice to people to to see. Then even if it was my, you know, one of my first few years of racing, then I was always trying. To make it happen even it was sometimes it was not really possible but as a young rider because i was young hmm. you know it's it's a it's a privilege to to try to never give up even when it looks impossible so this is something that or you you got this inside as a rider or you don't so and uh, when i was young i had this you know like suzuka <laughs> or like uh, um for example I don't know, maybe you are too young to remember, but uh, in the same year on uh, Okenine, on the, you know, that the last lap, there was a, you know, very, very risky move on the motodrome with the Rombonian Caperossi that, that was really crazy last lap. Kind of like this, you know, so that was me. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Up to you, Fran. Okay, well... 
we we will talk about your career, of course, but we also on these podcasts we want to talk about you and your life, you as a person, a bit more behind the rider, nothing too crazy. Um, but we'll start off. You had quite a unique entrance into the world championship because you didn't come through the lightweight class as it was at the time, one two fives. You just popped straight into two fifties. What was that like being thrown in at the deep end when you were so young and straight into the intermediate class? Well, actually, uh, we need to step back a little bit, you know, because when I first joined the the motorcycle world, I was already, first time, I was already 18 years old. So in the national championship, I was already adult. I mean, was just... uh, uh, too big to think uh, to go to the small class in the one day to the world championship, which is, you know, a class where the, a rider uh, begin when they are 14, 15. So I was already 18, 19. So, uh, so I did the national championship in uh, in Italy as a sport production, so production machine, and and then I went straight to European 250 because with my father we was thinking we are you know you are still too old, so it's better one day if you're access six in a European championship, you move to the World Championship 250. And that was the reason why I did it. Mm. And then I moved when I was, uh, yeah, 20. Yeah. See, I would still say that was very young, but you're like, oh, well, 18, you're an adult. I like that. <laughs> I find that quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, because if you're looking uh, already in the, in the past 10, 20 years, people starting to go on the bike when they are like four or five years old. So I was just, uh, I never dreamed to to jump on a bike when I was nine or 10 years. You know, I always thinking to be a football player. So motorcycle was another world for me. So and then so happy then I approached, even when I was adult, but still was enough to, you know, to, to take uh, the best of it. Who did you look up to when you were trying to come into the 250, uh, into the motorcycle racing world? Who were your heroes at the time, the ones that made you want to do that instead of football? Yeah, because uh, actually what what impressed to me was, uh, you know, remember John Kosinski? Mm-hmm. Of course. When he did the, the wild card in Laguna Seca that year, he, he won both races and something that was really something super cool you know very strange then the guy then he never raced in the world championship make just the wild card and and win the both races and then after that i was looking to win raining you know i have a chat with wayne uh, last week and i said that to him you know i have his poster on my on my bedroom so (laughs) with a yamaha you know number two um and then you know after 20 years almost i have a similar Yamaha with the same sponsor and same number, you know, than I raced with. So that was something very, very special. Was that always a dream then? So like, uh, is it something you always aspired to or did that just become a happy coincidence and you thought, oh, that's, that's cool. <clears throat> well, it's, uh, you know, it's a kind, it's a kind of hero that you had and, uh, and that, uh, that was a dream, a goal. Yeah. You know, to achieve, you know, to have the same kind of same bike, same color, same number, it's a, it's a coincidence, of course, 
buys is like also a small dream come true. I like that. So obviously you said you were an adult then, we'll take that, when you entered the World Championship, um, which is quite different to, like you said, some of the guys that enter now, although it's 16 for Moto3 now, unless you're the Sev Moto3 or Rookies Champion. But it's still quite a difference. And a lot in the championships have changed as well. What was it like being an athlete then compared to what you see now, especially through your team? Well, of course, back then, you know, it was not so so very intensive also. Um, when you don't start, when you're very young and kids, of course, also your mind is not, uh, the approach is not that technical as when someone teach you when you are very young so you have the chance to to learn to feel uh, something inside you so you, it's kind of teaching you know and when we were racing also when i think uh schwanz rainy uh mamola and the one before they was very instant you know they use uh, the instant uh, mode to ride the bike, you know. Now there is a preparation behind. There is a factory who make uh, the schooling. There is a, a, a knowledge. And before it was very mm, more natural, you know, not that technical. Now you can uh, not study to be a rider, but you you can be, you know, on the way to understand what you have to do to become a motorcycle rider. Talk, talk to us a little bit more about the instinct side of it. Is that you just did you feel that you were able to have because you had so much success so early on when you in your full time career to 250cc? How much of that do you put down to just your raw instinct and raw talent as opposed to maybe the work ethic technical side that you see that you see now? Well, also the preparation now is uh, it's amazing. You know, before you know, I remember back to 90, 1995, six. Actually, Mick Duan was a really athlete. He was like doing a triathlon. It was high preparation. And also, me coming from the soccer uh, division, you know, I had the kind of uh, um, backup of, uh, you know, working on physical uh, situation uh, very, very hard, you know. While uh, many other people, they, you know, I remember it was people who were smoking on the on the drive, it was very different, very, very, we're talking about 30 years ago, where it was very spontaneous, you know, many riders were just doing some small thing, but not really working themselves. Now, in the past 10, 20 years, you can see, you can prove your, um, your potential, your, you know, your body condition, much, much more than before. So by knowing, then you can work on this specific uh, uh, part of your uh, body or you can do this other, you know, there is so many techniques. So this is um, important and make uh, riders much more closer also because before someone was doing something, someone was doing nothing. So, and the gap, you see the gap plus if you have a talent or not, but this is a kind of plus point, you know. So how do you think you would do now if you entered the championship today? How do you think you would find that different world? 
Do you think it would be tougher or do you think you still would have had your background and you would have found it the same? Well, I cannot image myself to be back on the field again. <laughs> <laughs> no, no way. But uh, by knowing my riders, when the approach they have, I see they are very, very high professional, you know, in the way they eat, in the way they prepare the race, in the way they do things at home. So it's a, it's a proper um, full day job, you know, and uh, never stop. You know, it was a kind of the same similar for me, but now there are much more, maybe what they're doing now in Moto3, we were doing before when we were doing a MotoGP or 500cc. So, but now it's even small class, they're really, you know, they're doing the, the heavy job that we was doing before. Do you, when um, looking back at those sorts of times, I've got to tell you that I was actually born in 1994, so the year of your first World Championship, so I didn't see no. it at the time. <laughs> you make me feel very old. <laughs> but, uh, me too, eh? Even me too. <laughs> but, but looking back and when you hear people talk about that sort of era and any era before it, um, people viewed athletes, particularly motorcycle racing athletes, as um, as real sort of superheroes. Whereas now I feel that the average fan wants to, they want to see those riders as superheroes, but they want to f be more relatable to them. They want to see that they're almost ordinary guys doing amazing things. What did you feel your perception of was or what the fans, how they viewed you, especially in your first couple of years in the World Championship? Well, you know... Uh... Yeah, they feel like you're you're kind of a superhero, you know, like a guy that does crazy stuff. And <laughs> and the, most of the people um, who are not motorcycle fans, they was looking of us as a crazy guys. They were doing something amazing, but how you can do this? There was not so much thinking about. Then behind this, there is a preparation. There is a proper team. There is proper factory. There is a all people involved so it's before was not so uh there is not so much knowledge also about people who watching maybe television now tv uh, really go inside details and show you the little things then you don't even uh can image if you are not a part of the motorcycle world you know now there is much more details and they are telling this to 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 the audience, to the normal people who doesn't know even motorcycle. Yeah, it's definitely a different world, I think, and we can see how that professionalism going up in the championship, I think, is reflected in how many parts of the world see the sport as well. But we'll go back to one thing you said a minute ago, which is you would not want to be back on the track now. <laughs> Talk to us a little bit about retirement and how it feels when that's been your life and then suddenly you decide, okay, now I'm going to stop and I'm going to do something different and how you adjust to that. From Obviously from Superbike as well, not just from MotoGP. From yeah, yeah. yeah, let's let's talk about the uh, stop riding machine when I was uh, still professional. So that's back to, to 2012. Well, it's... Uh, it's uh, now, for me, it was, again, different because normally when riders decide to stop, normally you plan to stop, you know, because everyone tried to make their way out as best as possible, you know. And for me, it was a great opportunity, which is 
it was in that day in Le Mans in yeah Manicur because it was the last race. It was uh, the year that I won the title, and I said I have one one more year contract, so better to stop now because I won for zero point five points, which is nothing. And I said, oh, that's make me think, you know. So I was already 41. So it was a great opportunity to leave this world with the, with the best memories possible as a world champion of this category. Why not? You know, okay, I, I, um, I lost the income of the year after, which is uh, very important, but there was not the main one. So for me, it was the best solution is to... Uh, uh, leave a very good uh, image and memory about me riding a machine. And that was a, a, a great opportunity. So right now, if I have to think to go back, <laughs> even my mind cannot be that smart <laughs> to image myself inside of the field, of course. But um, I do ride sometimes because I, I love riding. And when I, I ride and I have opportunity, I really... I push to, to go as fast as I can. But normally when you are almost 50, 50 years of age like me, you think you're going the limits, but you don't. <laughs> <laughs> the limits change. When, um, yeah. when you did retire, and you, it's almost like you did almost a similar thing what Nico Rosberg did in F1. You, you won the title yeah. and you bowed out on top. Did... How, because you had a, a a more a darker experience, obviously, in, in at the end of two thousand and five, where you didn't have a MotoGP contract and you didn't have anything lined up for two thousand and six. So when you did it, did it feel more of a relief or an achievement to bow out whilst you're on top in a world championship because of your experience previously? Well, I, you know, the decision was made um, at first uh, to myself because. When I was in the in the MotoGP, I always always have a, a very good team. If it's not factory team, top team. And to go uh, on, I have opportunity to go on a private team, which have a good bike but not that good. And I was seeing myself in the position where I have no great chance to be fighting for the top three. So automatically, I I am not interested to do this. So. Even if I have that opportunity in 2005, 2006, uh, I regret. I said, no, well, you know, better to go with a top team, a factory team, which is give you the chance to perform at a high level. So when this opportunity went off, so I said, okay, 2006, I stay home and I reconsider it. And then it was a chance to, for me to go back on Riding with a superbike, which was another world completely different, but uh, really enjoyed it. So you did, though. You say you retired full time. You did briefly come back. What tempted you to do that? I think was it twenty fifteen or sixteen? I think fifteen. Yeah. Yes. What tempted you to do that? Was it just well, there's no pressure. I've proved my point. It's not my full time job, and see what it brought. Well, uh, they're they're realistic for first of all because I was still in love of of the of this kind of, of feeling. I will not say work, but I will say sport and feeling, which is uh, you know the adrenaline, which is the real fuel of the sport, you know, for for riders. 
Um, when I was packing for the two wild card in 2015, it was just because it was uh, a, again for me opportunity to to prove myself. Then I still can do it. So after two years, two and a half years of my last race, uh, for me it was a goal to be back on the world superbike and race over in the top top five. And it wasn't it wasn't easy because I lost so many automatism which is I didn't know <laughs> and then uh, when I did the race even if in the practice on qualify was fast but in the race again it was different you know it was not I was not feeling everything under control when I'm side by side with other riders so it's uh, it's uh, again you lost something if you're not racing every every month every every two weeks so but when I finally did my second race, which is realistic, was my last race in Sepang and achieved the podium. Again, I have a strange feeling because I was 44 years old, still on podium on World Superbike. And I watched on the podium, uh, uh, Johnny Ria was winning. He was 26 years old. And uh, same age of 27, Chad Davis, which was second. And me, 44. Uh, what I mean is something's something's wrong here. I'm, I should be here. So, and then I said, okay, this is my last one. But I was happy. And the, so you it, mentioned at the beginning there about you still have that same love of the sport. What talk to us a little bit about your your passion for motorcycle racing? Because you you had a very long career, given in in world championships. So for any rider, they'd be very very happy to be a world championship rider. Grand Prix, World Superbikes for that amount of time. But did the aspects and the things, the specific things in racing that you love change over that that time compared to when you were 250 world champions then in, in World Superbikes? Yeah, you know what? Now I will tell something that I never said. You know, what I really love, what I really love, it's, you know, the the, the, the job that there is inside of your team when you're prepared to go into the you know you're making like let's say it, you go to the war and you have all your 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 people then they make a strategy and everything and buy the bike and the setup and the track and the condition tire and everything and then you go for the race one for the for the first round when you stop uh, during the winter and then you go again for the race one then you make uh, your your debut so that's what is the my main uh, how you say it? something that make me really uh, give me the adrenaline when yeah. you stop for a few months and then you go back and you prepare maybe also you change team or bike or whatever and then you put yourself in the in the position and you need to do it a race one or the first attempt uh, Grand Prix so ah. this is for me and. Many years, 94, 95, 96, 97, 98, all the first race, if you check, I won for five years consecutive, even if I change class. Because I'm kind of a, a maniac of working behind the scene. You know? uh-huh. that, that preparation beforehand. Yes. Yeah, that was my, you know. So let's talk a little bit about some of maybe your favorite moments then. Can you pick out maybe three from your career that you'd say were your favorite moments and tell us why, of course. You can choose any championship, Superbike also. 
Okay, uh, first of all, <laughs> you know, I, I need to say the first time uh, that I did uh, the, 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 the World Championship in Barcelona in 1994, the first time I became World Champion, because it was my really first time, was my goal after a few years, and it was the really first time for the manufacturer that I was raised with, Aprilia. So all together was a, a fantastic moment. And the second, well, I will pick up the Suzuka 500, you know. Suzuka, the, the debut in, the, in the, the main class and the winning in, in Japan with a private team, which is uh, still unreal, but we and with our kind of model, all the team, we make it happen. And the third, uh, mm, well, I don't know. Uh, well, I will say the first title in uh, in Superbike in 2010. But also, I, I don't uh, something that really make me feel uh, uh, special. Then I don't know why. I don't know how I did it. That the wheeling in Brno. <laughs> yeah, that's so famous, man. That's that's happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, it's something I wanted to ask you there about the about how many titles you got in in two fifty. Um, first thing I wanted to ask is about the how you had your whole childhood as uh, until you were a grown man at eighteen, anonymous, normal childhood. But then in your motorcycle racing career, you were so quickly shot to stardom, like a, a major celebrity. <laughs> like you in in today's terms, you were a real you know proper celebrity in tabloid papers and stuff like that in Italy. What was what was that like? Just going from being a normal person to within a space of four or five years, like a national icon. What what? How, how did you get around that? No, well, is there is not. Uh, it just happened, and <laughs> yeah, I guess this is what. I guess this is what is gonna happen to all the team. They will have success in what they're doing. Um, well, I was I was young. I was not prepared, and of course. Uh, what it made me, you know, uh, always stay with my feet in the ground was my family. That, that's the biggest help. You know, they make me uh, the opportunity to to do in this world, but also they make me stay, you know, as a normal kid or so normal guy because um, the kind of um, uh, education that I had is is helped me out. And plus, you know, I. I Honestly, I'm a very simple person. That's that's why I'm never, you know, my head it doesn't go in the hair because you know I'm I'm, I'm always uh, close to the normal people in reality. And uh, okay, I have also friends, maybe a celebrity, but uh, but that also people need to understand that even a celebrity, most of them are very normal, you know. And so depends on which one you choose. Yeah, <laughs> that's good I like that perspective that makes a lot of sense so one more thing then obviously now you're still in the paddock although now as team owner how is that different and has your favourite thing about MotoGP changed is it still that preparation and then going to that first race or now in your new position is it something completely different yeah well no, to be ready for preparation race one, that's, that's not the same because 
in the Moto3 class, you know, everybody have the same equipment and everybody have the same tires. So it's more up to the riders, you know. So team can uh, help you out, but basically it's more about riders. So um, to be to be back, you know, to have a team in the, in the World Championship, of course, is uh, it's a different to be a, a rider like before. But also, I now realize when I jump, for example, Thursday, I go on the track, and when I go out out of uh, Thursday night, I see that the day is it goes so fast. You know, always, I'm I'm there with a with a team, maybe with the riders, or to do something with computer and organize team. But actually, the time runs so fast, and you don't really enjoy. Uh, the preparation for the weekend or the big point is going to be only the race, you know, the race on Sunday. That's the time where everybody sits in the, in, the, in the garage, on the front <laughs> of the TV or on the start line and uh, you feel it's a race day. But before, you just preparation work, you know, you your head down and you're very concentrated. It sounds like you've you've applied your your love of the preparation beforehand as a racer into your into your team as well. Is that right? Well, uh, you know, it's a different point of view because to to be like maniac of preparation, I can do with my team and stuff just to prepare the bike as best as possible, or to have uh, a track or hospitality with all the details done to to given a to offer. To my sponsor, the best, you know, welcome is possible. It's a different uh, point of view now. But again, team uh, survive if they make uh, um, with the riders the result. And mm. it's, we are all, uh, you know, into this. So we need to make the best out of it. But as a team owner, we need also to have a rider in good shape so uh, to make a good uh, combination. So, like you said, success is key when you're a team and you're a non-factory team as well. You have had a lot of success with your team already. How does that feel? How does it feel when you win, but you're not the rider anymore? Is it that same emotion? or? <laughs> well, in the same, it's very nice emotion. Not out, but um, different, of course, because you are not, you know, you're not in the position to... To, to across the start and finish the line and to go with the, <laughs> but yeah, but I I feel when my riders do this, I feel kind of the same because we we, we are part of the family and and with the rider we we make this happen. So I'm very I'm very happy and I'm very thankful also to Aaron Kane, which he did a great year last year with us, and he put uh, himself and my team in such a great uh, spot. So to finish the year one is in the second position is a privilege. You know, we had a great chance last year to win, but uh, finally we, we did a second, which is great result. Um, of course, now the expectation is very high because if you debut and you're already second, you know, you think the next one is going to be the one, but mm -hmm. it doesn't work <laughs> this way. So. Yeah. 
And it, of course, in your role as a team manager, you, I guess you'll be giving sort of personal career advice to your riders too. Something I'm always interested in from your perspective, given how successful you were in the intermediate class, times are different than, than they are now. The dynamic of the three world championships together is different. But what, what advice would you like to give to your riders? Do you think people go leave the intermediate class too early to try to get to MotoGP now? Well, you know, everyone, uh, they have like uh, on, on front of, your, of their face, the MotoGP. MotoGP is the, is the way to go and they try to make uh, as short as possible the way to, but um, I, I really think, you know, I, I prefer the rider who succeeds in one category and then move on. You know, that's what I, uh, I prefer. And if not, there is so many others who just run into the MotoGP and without really getting the result that maybe they, if they stay one more year, maybe they can achieve. So um, to the riders, it's very, it's very particular because riders' head is a, it's not that easy as head. And um, of course, I can give them some advice and especially if they they somehow they ask me i i don't want to just push them to do what i want to do so yeah. i want let them do it what they think to let them free of course uh, watching data with the crew chief and so on we can as a technician understand why things happen but uh, i prefer that the the team crew the, the the chief mechanic talk to the rider and try to explain them by watching data and if they need another another explanation another wording i can talk to them very very open so but i don't want to force them and to feel that i was the one who made it so you should do this do this, this. no <laughs> no <laughs> I imagine the guys you have in Moto3 and any Moto3 rider maybe wouldn't respond the best if someone just came in going, well, you need to do this, this, this. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course, it's not the best way. Even also they're young. When you're younger, you're very spontaneous. So, you know, you need to understand you know, that you're working with, uh, let's say, uh, young kids. You know, because uh, they are 16, 17, 18, you know, they are very young, you know. And most of these people are, uh, they go to the school, they still go to the school, they are with the family. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's not so easy. Yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult sort of balance to manage, I suppose. Well, um, it is. Okay, so we want to finish off the, the, the podcast with a little quick fire uh, round. So just a few either or option questions for you. Um, so thank you to, for Kenwood for the Kenwood quick fire round, of course, we call it. So um, are you ready for it's just 11 questions for either or quick fire as just the first thing that comes to your mind. OK, yeah. OK, so right. OK, after you, Fran. <laughs> OK, we, we start easy. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Course. What's better, first podium or first win? First podium? Hmm. Oh, mamma mia. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the question is when it was my first podium. No, no, which, which do you prefer? No, no, no. What feels better? Which is a better okay. feeling? Don't worry. Okay. It's not a quiz about you. <laughs> like. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, first, first podium, yeah, I will say the Barcelona 1994. 
And then for swing, it's the same. It's <laughs> <laughs> just as good. Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, so, which do you prefer? I've realized before that I put the wrong comparison here. So, it's Milan or Naples? Milano or Napoli? <laughs> well, let's say Milano because there is many things to do. It's <laughs> <laughs> fair answer. Uh, do you prefer summer or winter? I will say summer. Mugello or Mazzano? Mugello. <laughs> Always. <laughs> uh, what's your favourite film? Mm, well, Captain America. Oh, yeah? Interesting. Yeah. Cool, I like it. Be- Good choice. Because there is a... Not only because there is a... It's a Marvel uh, Studios, but because behind there is a... A thing that uh, make uh, I make you thinking that there's not uh, then the dream can can come true, you know, by an accident. Of course, you know the story of Captain America. Yeah. yeah. But <laughs> this guy, this guy is really want. I was desperate to do it, but mm-hmm. he didn't have the the physical. You know. Interesting. So nice. I, I, I like that. Uh, it has a I deeper like meaning for you. Nice. Okay. Uh, big Captain America fan here. Good. Good answer. <laughs> So, pizza or pasta? Pasta, pasta. What was your most unexpected win? Oh, most unexpected win. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) that's crazy. Most unexpected win. I have no idea. I've, I've got a possible answer for you. What, what about, um, was it was it 2003 Donington that you won? Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was yeah, that yeah. one? <laughs> that was one. Was that unexpected? That was one because, no, that, really not, because there was uh, uh, a sanction of uh, Rossi who hmm. did something under yellow uh, flags. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I didn't expect that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> it was Donington 2003, yes. Uh, did you realise when you came into Park Ferme or...? Uh, yeah, they told yeah. me. <laughs> they told me when... They told me when... Uh, not in the Park Ferme, when I, I, I ran to the step, to the podium. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, cool. What's the scariest or craziest crash that you've had on a motorcycle? Well, I have to say something was really crazy. Uh, Australia 2008 at the end of the straight at 300 kilometers per hour. Yes, that was the In, crazy uh, one. That was when which bike were you on there? Ducati? Oh, yes, that was crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was your favorite on track moment? A, a particular pass, crossing the flag moment? Take your choice, take your pick. Uh, I have to say something crazy, uh, no unexpected, but almost 2007, Vallelunga Superbike, uh, when uh, we went into the one big corner in four of us, top four, and I was the last, and I become, of, at the end of this corner, I just was first. <laughs> I was, that was crazy. But if you watch this uh, maneuver, it was, well, if I did, if I tried to do 10 times, maybe I cannot even do it. <laughs> so I think this is the last one. 
What was more fun to ride? The Aprilia 250 Grand Prix machine or Aprilia Superbike? Wow. So by emotion, Aprilia 250, because it was a disc valve. It was, oof. It was a very, very rare machine. Mm-hmm. Because now we can say this after so many years. <laughs> of course, of course, uh, the Aprilia Superbike, when it came out, it was something really so far uh, on technique, on technology, then it made me feel like I, I, I'm running something special. But of course, it's two different things. So yeah, if I have to pick up one, Aprilia 250. Awesome. Well, thank you, uh, thank you for the uh, for that your quick fire answers, Max. Um, before we cool. just uh, start to wrap up, then um, I just wanted to ask quickly because it, it always fascinated me growing up. The iconic number three um, was pretty have always been big on their small capacity machines, so like your one two fives, your scooters, and a lot of them had so many replicas of your liveries on them. Did you? How does that feel having such a, a widespread sort of footprint across the motorcycle community? Because I had friends growing up who had Max Biaggi replica Aprilia one two fives. Does is that something that you ever you ever thought about? Well, still now I received so many pictures from uh, people, fans uh, around the world. They still have uh, this replica one two five, two fifty scooter. So I think the, that long time ago Aprilia spread a lot of. Uh, a, a, a scooter bikes uh, with this uh, livrea and it makes me feel uh, old <laughs> but, uh, but also in somehow then for that year uh, it makes me feel uh, you know privileged because uh, you know everyone like to be a Corsaro from the 250 uh, which is have uh, the black bike with the yellow helmets so this is a kind of uh, a print uh, that uh, it always uh, will remind uh, in my memory and also in the fan members excellent okay cool just uh, i always want to know that it's something very curious well thank you very much for your time <laughs> really appreciate you. it and uh I'm loving the ig lives as well keep those up even <laughs> the quarantine. we will try you know it's not easy because um it's not easy asking people to do this because uh, in a way you always ask you know when you ask i don't like really so if something come out uh, automatically, it's okay. But to keep doing it is very difficult because mm. this is like journalist job. <laughs> but <laughs> it's not so easy. Welcome, welcome. Yeah, it's tough, but, isn't it? But uh, it was nice because uh, one I really appreciate that the one with Wayne Rainey, and it's so emotional to talk to Wayne about uh, the old memories and so on. And also with the two in the same day. In one hour, I did half an hour with the both Troy, Troy Kors and Troy Bailey's. Were very nice, very awesome. very nice. <laughs> Amazing. I stories. like that. Both Troys. We all know who you mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Well, we'll let you go then, and uh, we'll get re- well. let, allow you to prep for your next one. So, really appreciate it, and speak to you soon. Yes, yes thanks, thanks so very much. much. And, uh, have, okay. have a good one. Bye Ciao. now. Ciao. Well, thanks a lot, Max, for your valuable time. Sorry to drag him away from doing those almost iconic Instagram lives, as we mentioned there. So uh, Max is not actually the only real star of the sport that we've uh, got coming up on the show over the next couple of weeks as well. Of course, we've already had some stars of the show. I mean, you've got Twitter celebrity Alex Briggs we had before, but can't quite reveal who we have coming up on the show next week just yet because actually there's quite a host of different uh, high-profile candidates, I should say. 
Yes, there are. Although candidates makes it sound like they're desperately applying. Obviously, it's more organising everything as we all continue in lockdown. Can be a bit of a challenge. I'm sure you all understand. But audiovisual lockdown edition of Last on the Breaks will return again next week with, yes, hopefully another legend of the sport, current or previous. Yes. Well, you'll have to tune in to find out who it is. Hope you guys have been enjoying this one. And, of course, please leave, leave us a comment uh, or a rate or review on the very, whichever podcast platform you're listening on. Leave a comment on the YouTube video. Let us know what you liked, what you didn't like. Be nice to us, please, and the guests as well, I suppose. Um, so uh, give us some feedback and let us know who you actually want to see on the podcast because although we have some names that we've already got written down, maybe there's somebody else who we've not thought of yet who's just sitting, bored, waiting on lockdown, ready for a 40-minute chat with myself and Fran. Absolutely. It is an unimaginable treat in these dark times. But uh, no, sarcasm aside, we hope that you are all doing okay during these times and we're managing to lift your spirits a little bit with these interviews. Thank you very much for listening and hopefully we'll be back with you again next week. Bye.